Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 to 25. The last talk was called Your Kingdom Come, and this one is called A Marriage Made on Earth. Let's hear God's word from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 to 25. This is the talk that you've all come to the weekend for. Okay, come on, admit it. We started the castle in 2002 with the book of Ruth, and uh, now we're back into marriage again. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he built into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth. So we pray that you would come now and illuminate our minds, uh, conform our wills, and stir our affections. And we ask this in the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised, world without end. Amen. Marriage. It's a topic that's unavoidable, and I don't just mean because it's been in the media a lot recently with the campaign to redefine marriage in recent years. Marriage is unavoidable for several reasons. For most of us here, we were born into a married home with one man and one woman. I know there may be exceptions for some of us, uh, but for most of us, we were, in a, we were born into a married home. And even if we weren't born into such a home, the fact is that marriage is still something that is unavoidable for us. Because if we're honest, we all grow up thinking about marriage at some stage of our lives. Uh, Young girls all enjoy the stories of Cinderella and Rapunzel, where a princess meets a charming prince and gets married. Uh, My little niece, uh, Ella, is... uh, Uh, obsessed with the movie Frozen, in which Anna gets to meet and marry Hans. Uh, While it's not so much the case for young boys uh, at that age, yet when they come to their late teens, early 20s, that's what they start thinking about. They start noticing girls, and then they reach their student days, and it becomes a bigger deal. And you go off to university, and you think, well, am I going to meet the person that I'm going to marry? And then once we hit our 20s and 30s, Uh, the issue of marriage becomes very much on our radar. I remember when I was a minister in Cambridge, uh, we put on a a day, uh, sort of a a weekend conference for our young adults, 
And we had a day of teaching on marriage and relationships. And afterwards, we had about a 30, 40-minute question time. And then Jackie and I invited people back to our home that evening. And they all piled into our house. And there we were two hours later still talking about questions to do with marriage, relationships, dating, etc. Why were these young adults wanting to come back on a Saturday night to our house to talk for over two hours? Well, because marriage and relationships were on their mind. And if you're here this weekend and you're single, then I'm sure it's something that you have considered. Um, We can't avoid it. It's something that is in the world. It's a good thing, and it's something that we have to consider. Even for people who are divorced or marriage uh, has been a difficult thing for them, Uh, It's still something that we cannot avoid. And as I said earlier, it's a hot topic in our society at the moment. And it's something that we think about at different stages of our lives. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes, There has never been a culture or a century in which marriage was not central to human life. Never been a century or a culture in which marriage was not central to human life. To human life. And the main reason why is because marriage has been there from the beginning. In the beginning, God made marriage. Marriage didn't evolve in the Bronze Age as apes came swinging out of the trees or as Neanderthal farmers came out of their caves. No, marriage is a creation ordinance made at the beginning of time, an institution established by God. Marriage is not medieval. Marriage is creational, and it's central to the Bible's story. The Bible begins with a wedding. Jesus' first miracle is a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. (coughs) Marriage was there in the beginning, and it will be there at the end. And that's because marriage is God's idea, and it's idea that God wants to be front and central in his world That's another reason why we can't avoid it. And therefore, we need to understand it. Because marriage is central to the way God made his world to work. Uh, Remember how we summarized the story of the universe this morning? God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. Do you see how marriage is central to that story of the heavens and the earth? Uh, Under his son and bride... Adam and Eve were married, and that is how God's kingdom was to extend in the earth. So we need to understand marriage, whether we're here this weekend married or single, whether we've had a good experience of marriage or a bad experience of marriage. As Christians, we need to understand the centrality of marriage to God's purposes in this world. And we're going to look at this passage in chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, under three headings. Number one, marriage serves God's creation mandate. Marriage serves God's creation mandate. Uh, Chapter 1, 26 to 28, and chapter 2, 18 to 20. If you just look back with me at chapter 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's creation mandate from the beginning was for man and woman in marriage to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth and then subdue it. Now remember Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3, then skips ahead to the seventh day. And then chapter 2, 4 to 25, returns to the creation of man on the sixth day. And after God has formed Adam from the dust of the earth, as the first man, he places him in the Garden of Eden. And although it's a garden of paradise, there is something that is not good. Chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, all the way through Genesis chapter 1, uh, I think it's five times, we read, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And here, on day six, is something that God sees that is not good. And it is that the man is alone. And the rest of the chapter, verse 19 to 25, is about how God fixes this problem of man being alone. Now, if we're going to understand marriage properly, then we must understand exactly what God says here. He's not saying that it's not good for man to be lonely. Therefore, I will make a friend for him. Um, If he had said that, then he would have maybe given him one of the animals because, after all, isn't a dog a man's best friend? Uh, So the issue is not loneliness of life. Uh, some people in bad marriages speak about the loneliness of marriage. There's one of those proverbs that says three things the world cannot handle, a fourth, three things are bad, a fourth the world cannot handle, and it is a woman in marriage who is not loved. So marriage is not the answer to your loneliness because loneliness can occur in a marriage. The problem is a loneliness in work. That's really what God is saying here. It's not good that he is alone to do his work, his calling. That's what's going on here. And what God therefore provides for Adam is not primarily a friend, but a helper. Now, there's some people say, you know, you don't want to marry. uh, You you need to just look for someone who compliments you. He's going to help you. And... uh, And they do it to the exclusion of companionship. Malachi chapter 2 talks about your wife being uh, the companion in your life. So companionship is very much an aspect of marriage. Uh, But the point here is that the primary reason why God makes uh, the woman is to be Adam's helper. And what was she to help him with? Well, Chapter 2, verse 15, narrowly, she was to help him with the working and keeping of the garden. And then broadly, chapter 128, she was to help him with filling and subduing the world. And so this is the task that Eve is created into. She's to help the man fill and subdue the world and then keep and work the garden. And it's in this sense that marriage serves God's creation mandate. Marriage is central to God's plan for the world. It's central to the story of the heavens and the earth. Marriage serves God's creation mandate because you have one man and one bride. 
uh, and his bride filling and subduing the world. You have a man and his bride keeping and working the garden temple. So that's the first point. Marriage serves God's creation mandate. Uh, Number two, marriage represents God's creation order. Marriage represents God's creation order. And we see this in three ways. Uh, First, in marriage, the man is the head. In marriage, the man is the head. Now, by head, I mean authority. Uh, In marriage, the man is the authority. And this can be seen in this passage in two ways. First, there is the order of creation. Adam is made first. We saw that uh, this morning in chapter 2, verse 9. Now, that's such an obvious point And it hardly needs making, but it's an important point because the order of the creation of the man and the woman establishes the authority of the man over the woman. We see this in the New Testament. Uh, Paul argues for the authority of a man over his wife on the basis of this creation order in Genesis 2. So listen to 1 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 to 10. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 10. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Sorry, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So do you see how Paul grounds the authority of a man over his wife in the creation order? She was made for him, not him for her. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 13, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in church. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he gives the reason for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the order in which the man and the woman were created establishes the authority in relationship. And that's not unlike Uh, the order of siblings. An older brother naturally carries more authority in the home uh, when his parents are gone, simply because he was born first. We have the same thing with the monarchy in the UK. Prince William will get the throne over Prince Harry uh, because, what, he's better looking? Or, uh, no. Uh, He was born first. Okay, order matters. And in this case, the authority of the man derives from him being created first over the woman. So that's the first way we see uh, the man as head in this marriage. The other way is Adam's actions. Did you notice how his actions display his God-given authority? Adam acts in these verses with an authority that reflects God's authority, verse 19. So out of the ground... Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now, notice the word call there. Whatever he called them, that was its name. And in chapter 1, what is it that God does? He calls. He calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. Chapter 1, verse 8, he calls the expanse heaven or sky. Verse 10, he calls the dry land earth or land. 
God is acting like a king with authority. He separates, divides, distinguishes, and then he names things. Well, Adam does the same. He names the creatures. So he is an image bearer of God, acting like God with authority. Indeed, he gives a name to the person made from his side. Verse 23, then Adam said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The woman is named woman by Adam, and this reoccurs after the fall in chapter 3, verse 20, where he names her Eve. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So here is Adam exercising authority like God by naming uh, creatures and then his wife. Now, some think that male headship in marriage is a post-fall reality and a product of sin. So before the fall, Adam and Eve were equal. Then after the fall, there's this brokenness and Adam starts to dominate his wife. And some think that's where you get this headship. It's a post-fall reality, not a pre-fall reality. And some think the naming of Eve in chapter 3, verse 20 is an example of that abuse of authority. I mean, could she not name herself? How dare he? Okay, so that's one response. But I hope you've seen there that the exercise of Adam naming is something that is pre-fall and not post-fall. Okay, Um, he names her Eve. It's a bit like um, a wife today taking her husband's surname, if you like. She is, in a sense, being named by him, that's just simply meaning she's coming under his authority. So from those two things, the order in which they were made and the actions of Adam, we can see that the man is the head. Now, before we move on to the next aspect of God's creation order in marriage, I want to make two qualifications. And these two qualifications need to be made because we live in a fallen world Uh, that hates God's good order in creation, secularism, feminism, egalitarianism, they all rile against God's order. And the second reason I want to make the qualification is because men in a fallen world abuse their responsibility that God has given to them. So I'm going to make two qualifications. The first is the words in marriage are really important. The Bible does not teach that men in general have authority over women. It is only in a marriage that a man has authority over his wife. And that's really important. Okay? The men on this weekend do not have authority over any one of you single ladies just by virtue of being a man. So if they ask you to clear the plates away from the table, you can tell them to get lost. Okay? You, you have my authority to do that. Okay? Uh, they do not have one ounce of authority over you. Okay? Your father, if he is living, has authority over you. Um, any man who wants to marry you should respectfully ask him for your hand in marriage. Your minister and the elders have authority over you, but only in the context of a church. But no man, bar your father and your elders, has authority over you. And even your elders don't have authority over you by nature of them just being men. Okay, They're ordained by God to care for the flock and they have authority over every man and woman in the church. Okay, um, So 
That's the first qualification. And it's very important because I think even in our conservative, reformed, evangelical churches, uh, we can actually abuse, misuse this, and think that women just need to be generally submissive to us. Because we're men, they're women, and they should submit. Um, And that's just an abuse. It's only in marriage is a woman to submit to a man. Only in marriage is a man the head of a woman. So that's the first qualification. It's only in marriage. And the second one is what we mean by head, by authority. There are different kinds of authority in society and in marriage. Uh, There is misused authority. There is abused authority. And there's also good authority. And authority done well is a beautiful thing. Authority done badly is an ugly thing. And the authority that God gives Adam was to be a beautiful authority. He was to protect and provide for his wife. Uh, Now, what would that look like for Adam? Well, I think it can be summed up in two words. Sacrificial responsibility. Sacrificial responsibility. Adam was to be responsible for the woman, for his wife, and Adam was to sacrifice for his wife. That is what authority looks like. There are many men who want the authority without the responsibility or the sacrifice. But if we're going to be men in a marriage, then we need to take responsibility and we need to sacrifice for our wife and our children. And what we find, so that's what authority looks like, sacrificial responsibility. And what we find in chapter 3 is Adam abdicating his responsibility at the first sign of danger to his wife. Think about it. At the first sign of danger, what does Adam do? Stays silent. Doesn't do anything for his wife. Here she is facing a serpent who is dangerous, who is cunning, who is deceitful, who is trying to get her to disobey God, and he stands by her side in silence. He neither takes responsibility for her, nor is he willing to enter into a fight with the serpent at the risk of his own life. He wants the authority without the sacrificial responsibility. But authority, when it takes responsibility and is willing to sacrifice, is a beautiful thing. A man protecting and providing for his wife so that she flourishes under his headship is a beautiful thing. Uh, But sadly, there are men, as I said, who want to be married, who want neither the responsibility nor the sacrifice. So, those are the two qualifications for that first point, that under under our second point. You're maybe as lost as I am. (laughs) Marriage represents God's creation order. That's our second point. And under that, we had, in marriage, the man is the head. And I've made two qualifications. Okay? Here's the second point of the second point. Okay? (laughs) Marriage represents God's creation order. Here's the second point. In marriage, the woman is the helper. The first point, in marriage, the man is the head. In marriage, the woman is the helper. Verses 18 and 20. Now, our society tends to think that the word helper is derogatory or demeaning, as if here the woman is just the man's slave or servant. Uh, but neither, but helper is neither a, 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 helper is never a derogatory role. It's a dignified role. 
And this passage shows us this in a number of ways. Notice what kind of a helper she is, verse 18 and verse 20. Um, I will make him a helper fit for him, or as the NIV says, suitable for him. It is literally like opposite him. I will make him a helper like opposite him. In other words, the helper is fit or suitable for him because she is a complement to him. She will be his complementary half, as we would say, or the other half, as our cliched saying goes. It's not like Adam can take and leave her if he wishes and then find some other partner for the task. No, she is made like opposite to him, suitable to him, fit for him, corresponding to him, because she is of the same kind of being as he is. This is the whole point of verses 19 and 20. There was no suitable fit opposite for Adam in the animal kingdom. The woman is not an animal. She is an image bearer of God. She is complementary, equal, opposite to Adam. She is opposite to him. She is a she, not a him. But she is like him. She is made in the image of God. And only because she is like him can she be his helper. She is equal in essence, and that is what makes her suitable for him. Uh, She's taken, uh, and this is seen, her equality to him is seen from where she is taken. Do you see that in verse 21? She's taken from one of his ribs, Theodore Beza, the uh, reformer in Geneva who took over from John Calvin, put it beautifully, The woman was not taken from a bone in the skull to be above the man, nor a bone in the heel to be under him, but from his rib to be besides him, close to his heart. I mean, that's a a tearjerker, ladies, isn't it? You're all right, not one down. Men, Valentine's Day. Okay, By his side. Isn't that beautiful? Close to his heart. She was equal to him, opposite to him, but equal. And that equality is seen in the words that Adam speaks in verse 23. This at last, it's like he's exasperated. He hasn't been able to find a partner. At last, this one is, here's the equality, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. The word at last indicates his exasperation of not finding anyone else. Uh, But if he has now found a suitable helper from his side, then he has found a helper equal to him. Isn't that what he says with that beautiful piece of poetry? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is equal to him. Even her name conveys equality. It sounds like man, woman, man. It's the same in the Hebrew. Ish is the word for man, isha is the word for woman, ish, isha. She was taken from the ish to be an isha. She was a man, she she was not a man. (laughs) Let's let's get that clear, okay? Eve, all right? Not Steve, okay? Eve, we'll come to that tonight. She was a woman taken from the man, okay? There There was a Freudian slip. Um, verse 24 also conveys equality. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Well, you can't become one flesh if you're not of the same flesh. Okay? Equal flesh. So what we learn here is that though the woman is made second, though this means in marriage she will be under his authority, though the woman is made to be his helper, he is not made to be her helper, though all those things are true, she is equal to him in every essential way. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. There is no inequality or inferiority even as she assumes the role of helper. She is different, yes. She is helper, not head, yes. But she is equal in essence. In other words, in marriage, the woman is equal but different to the man. Equal in essence, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, but different in function. Man is the head, woman is the helper. And this is important to note because the woman loses no dignity in being a helper. She's still equal in essence with the man. Indeed, it is her equality of essence that helps her serve as a helper suitable for the man. So assuming a different role to the man in marriage is not demeaning in any way. It actually maintains her dignity. But it's not just a dignified role. It's a powerful role. Because think about it. The man, Adam, cannot complete his task without her. That's God's point. It is not good for man to be alone because if he is alone, well, he can't complete the task. He needs her to work and keep the garden, but think about it. He needs her to fill the earth, right? He's not about to multiply on his own, okay? And so she, her role is a powerful one. It's a, she's in a position of strength. For if the man cannot complete his task alone, then the strength for him to complete his task is found in his complementary equal opposite, in his wife. So not only is she equal but different to him, she's also his strength. So the word helper here is neither derogatory nor demeaning. It's a dignified role. It's a powerful role. In the Old Testament, God is called Israel's helper. Okay? And just as God's role as Israel's helper is a position of strength, so too is a woman's. And this is what is wrong with feminism and egalitarianism. They have not strengthened the position of wives and mothers, and I would say women in general. They have weakened their position because the position of strength for a wife and a mother is beside a man in the task God has given him to do. Have you noticed in all the movies these days, um, Cars, what, what number are we up to? Cars number three, is it? Uh, Star Wars, uh, Wonder Woman. Have you noticed who the heroes are? Heroines. It's always the woman now who's saving the man. Uh, our culture is moving towards this empowerment of women like they can save uh, themselves on their own without the man. Uh, Megan Merk Merkel, who walked down the aisle, did you see what the commentators were saying? Isn't it wonderful how her father isn't here and she's showing the strength of a woman being able to walk down the aisle on her own? It's all about women empowerment and it's all detached from men in general um, and particularly from a man in a marriage. But a woman's strength is not on her own. A woman's strength is beside her man in marriage, where they both serve God's purposes together. I am only here today, and I'm only able to do what I do because of the strength of my lovely wife, Jackie. I wish she was here so you could meet her, uh, but she is my strength. Uh, 
She's my helper. And I only get to serve the Lord in ministry because I'm married to her. And my power and my effectiveness comes through her support of me. So she's actually the one in the position of strength. And that's why it's all about keeping your wife on side. Okay? Because she's your helper. Okay, here's the third aspect of the second point. Okay? In marriage, the man and the woman are one flesh. So we're looking at marriage representing God's creation order. In marriage, the man is the head. In marriage, the woman is the helper. And third, in marriage, the man and the woman are one flesh. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, these words are not part of the narrative flow. They're not telling us the next thing that happened in the marriage, because Adam and Eve didn't have a father or a mother. Okay? This is Moses' commentary on marriage in general. And the narrator takes the first marriage and makes it paradigmatic of all human marriages. And the principle he wants to convey is that in human marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. The man was torn apart at the side of his rib in order to receive back the part that was taken from him. And that's the point here. In marriage, the man and the woman do not live together as two individuals, but as one person because she was taken from him and then she is given back to him, not to be two people, but to be one flesh. So in marriage, maths maths does something um, magical. One plus one equals one. It's not a half a person plus a half a person equals one. It is a whole person plus a whole person united together in marriage and they equal one. Now, again, this is so very different to how our society thinks. Secular counseling on marriage will speak of marriage as the intimacy of growing up alongside each other. Notice the words, alongside each other. According to this view of marriage, marriage is about two people remaining independent, autonomous individuals who learn to get alongside, respecting each other's life journeys. That's egalitarianism. And on this view, you can have two people in marriage, and when one acts, it should not affect the other person. Indeed, they would say a mature marriage is where the two individuals can learn not to be affected by the other person's actions. But that's not how the Bible speaks of marriage. Marriage is not two individuals learning to live together under one roof. Marriage is one flesh union, which primarily refers to sexual union, but which becomes a picture of marriage in general. A man and a woman together in marriage are to be unified in everything. They are to be one flesh. Now, if you come with me back to Ephesians 5, our reading earlier. Ephesians 5. And notice how Paul really plays on this uh, picture of one flesh in verses 28 to 31. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now think who the husband is earlier in the chapter. He is the head. Okay? So there's the image. The husband is the head. And now the wife is seen as his body. Okay? So in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ is the head, we are the body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see what Paul does here? In marriage, the husband is like the physical head of a person, and the wife is like the physical body. And his point is that husbands ought to love their wives as they would their own body. I mean, what head do you know that doesn't love its own body? Uh, If you're a husband, imagine for a moment that I was to interview your body about about how you treat it. I imagine your body would say, if you're married, if you're a husband, well, he always feeds me when I'm hungry. Uh, When I'm tired, he lets me rest. Uh, When my feet are sore, he puts them up in front of the TV Uh, He spends about 30 minutes a day looking at me in the mirror, uh, sticking his chest out often. He puts nice clothes on me since he got married. Uh, He never never goes out of the house to get away from me. Why does he do all this for me? Because my head, because I and my head are one. The head and the body are one, and that's the the basis on which God, uh, Paul, commands husbands to love their wives. If you nourish and cherish your own body, and your wife is like your own body in spiritual union with you, then why would you not treat her like you treat your own body? But the sad fact is that there are many husbands who self-harm, self-harm their own bodies. That is, they harm their wives. But if you harm your wife physically, emotionally, relationally, in any way, it's like you're self-harming yourself. Now, I wish I had time to unpack the profound incentive in that analogy of a one-flesh union for how husbands should treat their wives. But let me just give you one illustration. Imagine a husband that does not listen to his wife's opinions, that does not ask his wife for her input, Uh, I think that is as idiotic as me in my head deciding I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow without any training, and so I set off on my marathon because I've decided in my head I'm going to run a marathon. And I've done no training, and 15 minutes in, my body starts sending me signals. This is a bad idea. (laughs) And I say, no, I'm the authority. I'm going to ply ahead with this. 30 minutes in, This is a really bad idea. Okay? Now, everything in my body is telling me, don't do this. And what would happen if I just keep trying to go? It'll shut down. Okay? And I'll never complete the marathon, even though I said in my head I was going to run a marathon. Now, I wasn't being sensitive to the needs of my body. I wasn't being a very good head. And my head's lack of sensibility sensitivity to my body's signals is the cause for my whole person's suffering because you cannot separate a head from the body. And in marriage, in which a husband does not care for his wife as he does his own body, is a marriage that won't be able to keep going. Eventually, there'll be a shutdown. Okay? Why? Because the husband and the wife are one flesh. They're not two individuals just living together. They're one flesh. And yet the husband's acting like the head is disjoined from the body. So I hope that analogy helps for how a husband and a wife are one flesh and how a husband should treat his wife. 
Um, so we've seen three aspects of how marriage represents God's creation order. In marriage, the man is the head. In marriage, the woman is the helper. In marriage, the man and the woman become one flesh. And when this equal but different dynamic of the husband and wife relationship reflects God's creation order, then it also reflects the marriage of Christ and his church, as Paul shows us in Ephesians 5. Which brings us to the final point about marriage. So we've seen so far that marriage serves God's creation mandate. Second, marriage represents God's creation order. And third, marriage has not changed, nor will it ever. Marriage has not changed, nor will it ever. Now tonight, I'm going to give a a talk from Genesis 2 and chapter 1 1 and 2 on shameless sexuality. I'm going to speak about the whole gender, same-sex debate. And this third point relates to that. Marriage has not changed, nor will it ever. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 again, and verse... 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The amazing thing that Paul says here about marriage is that it's not primarily about a man and a woman, but about Christ and his church. That's the profound mystery that Paul talks about here. The relationship between Christ and his church does not illustrate marriage. Human marriage illustrates Christ and his church. This is the reason why, as Christians, we are opposed to same-sex marriage. Because same-sex marriage preaches a false gospel. A human marriage primarily represents Christ and the church. And a same-sex marriage preaches a distorted gospel gospel. We're of course opposed to same-sex marriage because it's not for the common good of society. There is no natural human flourishing in a same-sex marriage. The two women or the two men cannot have children. Okay, You cannot make water run uphill. It's not the way God's made the world to operate. Water runs downhill. And it's the same with human flourishing. It does not happen between two women or two men. But that's not the primary reason we're opposed to it. We're opposed to same-sex marriage because it preaches a false gospel. Christ did not die for another Christ. The church does not submit to another church. Christ died for the church, and the church submits to Christ. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel that every human marriage, one man and one woman, proclaims. And precisely because human marriage is an illustration of the marriage between Christ and his church, marriage has not changed, nor will it ever, because the gospel has not changed, and, it is not, and it's never going to change. Marriage is still about one man and his bride serving God's creation mandate. It's still about one man and his bride fulfilling and subduing the world as we wait for our Sabbath rest. Marriage is still about one man and his bride representing God's creation order. One man and his bride together as one flesh. You see, Genesis 2 is not really about Adam and Eve at all. It's about Christ and his church. And that marriage serves God's creation mandate. And it represents God's creation order. And that's why marriage can't be avoided. 
because ultimately the relationship between Christ and his church cannot be avoided because that marriage is central to the story of the universe. God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride in marriage awaiting a Sabbath rest. So that is why marriage is of such importance to us and why we need to understand it. Whether we're married or single, we need to be interested in marriage because ultimately it is about Christ and his church. Uh, Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son uh, to win a bride for himself. And we thank you that we here today are by grace members of that bride. And we pray that you would deepen our love for the Lord Jesus, our great husband-to-be. We pray that you would help us to long for that future day where this uh, wedding will be consummated, where we will enjoy feasting on and with the Lord Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we pray for marriages represented here. We pray that they would reflect by your grace the marriage of Christ and the church. We pray for those who are single. We pray that if it is your will that you would provide a husband or a wife for them and that in their marriages they would reflect your good order in creation. But we pray most of all, Father, that you would lift our eyes to that horizon of the coming day when our husband will return and take us home. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.